Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his entire life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We have just started a new major Bible study looking at the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. This book is so full that it will take most of a year to get through these chapters. Class teacher Doug Brady has told us that this is one of his very favorite books in the Bible. And by the time we finish this study, you'll be saying the same thing. We are looking at the introduction of the book of Daniel and just starting to look at the first few verses in chapter 1. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorn Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. If you are looking for biblical teaching that is more than just words, this is the class for you. We would love to meet you, so plan to visit our class soon. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so here's our longtime teacher and good friend, Doug Brady. We're doing a study on Daniel. It's probably my most favorite book in the Bible. This book is unbelievable, and I want you to know, if I could have one thing as a result of these lessons, that one thing would be that you and I both understand how to live an uncompromising life. That is my goal. What does it mean to be uncompromising as a godly man or woman? That's where we're going. So let's get started today. We're going to read the first two verses of the book of Daniel, and then we'll go back to understanding where things are coming from. But before we read, let's pray. Dear God in heaven, I thank you that you have allowed the Holy Spirit and your Son to dwell in my spirit, that you have filled me and indwelt me. May today, as a result of that, I simply be a tool of yours and that you use me to speak to your people. May I not do anything to try and steal any of your glory because it all belongs to you. May I say only what you want said? And if I planned on saying something you don't want said, I pray you'll just remove it from my mind. I pray that you'll bless the service and that you'll protect our church from those who want to destroy it. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Daniel 1, 1 through 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought uh, the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, I want you to think here just a second. First of all, there's a word some of you may not be familiar with, Shinar. What in the world does that mean? Shinar is the same thing as Chaldea. It's the same thing as Mesopotamia. It's the same thing as Babylon. So that's what that means. Now, he, when did this happen? In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim. It's the third year. is 605 B.C. 
Nebuchadnezzar showed up there around 606 B.C., and it was over in 605 B.C. This was the first of three invasions of the kingdom of Judah by the Babylonians. Now, I want you to see something, and I want you to understand something. This is very important. Now, who, from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, was the one responsible for the victory over Jerusalem and Judah? Now, he would probably say, in some instances, no, it's my gods. They are superior to the Israelis' gods. But sometimes Nebuchadnezzar had a real hard time differentiating between himself and his gods, if you know what I mean. Now, who did the Jewish people believe was responsible for Nebuchadnezzar's victory? In a manner of speaking, they did. They thought, you deserted us. It's your fault, Yahweh, that you let him win, that he won because you deserted us. You didn't help us. You didn't intervene. Now, they were mixed up because, of course, this is the start of the fifth cycle of discipline to punish them for hundreds of years of disobedience and leaving God and disobeying his law. Now, who in actuality caused this victory? God did. That's what it says. The Lord gave Jehoiakim and the king of Judah into his hand. There's no question about it. Now, that's a principle that we need to understand. It's very easy to tell who God wants to win a war. How do you know? Who won? (laughs) Now, does that apply to elections? You know, I know most of us wish that before God did what he did on November 3rd, he would have come to us and talked to us and consulted with us about it. But he doesn't do that. And maybe that's too much of a joke, but the concept is he doesn't need our input. He's got a plan, and he's going to do it. And it may seem like he's making a mistake to some people, but he doesn't make mistakes. So with the rise of Babylonia and its invasion of the king of Judah, a new period began in the history of Israel. And there was a little confusion over this last Sunday, and we need to make it clear. Because a new time period started for the Jews. It's called the time of the Gentiles, when they were overrun. Now, when is the start of this period, the time of the Gentiles? It's at the end of the third invasion, when Zedekiah is removed from the throne. Now, who was Zedekiah a descendant from? David. He was a descendant from David. So, he was removed. No one at that time was sitting on the throne of David. When does the time of the Gentiles end? When there is a descendant of David who once again comes and sits on that throne. From exit to the throne to retaking the throne. And who is that king going to be? Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David. And that's when the time of the Gentiles, you notice it. For example, when the Maccabeans had control of Israel. Was there a king? Well, right now, the Jews have control of Israel and Jerusalem. Is there a king? No. No, There will not be a king. What if they decide, you know what, we're going to become a monarchy and we're going to make Benjamin Netanyahu the king. Will that happen? No. No. They have no more lineage. They can't find it from the line of David. Well, there is somebody who is, but they don't know. And maybe they did know, but let me tell you, the next king 
sit on that throne will be Jesus and no one else, just like no one's going in that east gate. Now, moving forward, so we're waiting for the next king in the line of David to sit on that throne. And wouldn't it be nice if it happens really soon? Yes. Now, the Jews are in a very unusual situation right now. For 800 years, they've been in the land. They've worshipped first at the tabernacle and then at the temple. Their law was set up along that way. Now things have really changed. If you're a devout Jew, where are you going to sacrifice? There's no temple. It's gone. It's been destroyed completely. No stone left upon another. No place to sacrifice. Now, what were the Jewish men supposed to do three times a year? Go to Jerusalem, what for? Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of Tabernacles. Can they do that now? No. No celebrations of those feasts? Nothing like that. What is the day that changes the sin situation in the Jewish uh, people? Rosh Hashanah, or Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, not Rosh Hashanah. That, that's the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Can they have the Day of Atonement anymore celebration the way God told them to? No. So much of the Jewish or the Mosaic law is rendered inoperative because they're not in the land anymore. They have no center of worship. And now the Jewish people have to learn to live in a pagan world, a world that's hostile to their God and hostile to his people. That's why I wanted to study this book. Because won't we live in the same kind of culture that's hostile to God, not just saying, well, you know, we're all even. No, hostile. There even are people in our nation who want to have the government determine that evangelicals such as you are really domestic terrorists and need to be treated as such. It's coming. You say, uh, no, the Constitution will protect us. The Constitution is only as good as those nine people who are sitting, well, or maybe 13 people who are sitting on that bench. Now, I would suggest to you that in many ways we're facing today in the secular evil America what Daniel and his three companions face. If you look at Daniel's life, his faith was sometimes tolerated by the government as long as it didn't interfere with their plans. Our society seeks to prevent our faith from intruding into schools, business, government, politics. Uh, the world then or now doesn't believe they need to answer to anyone or there's anyone they're going to ever have to answer to. Now, in this setting, God's going to prove to Daniel and to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah and to us three very important things. If you want to live an uncompromising life, you need three key convictions. Three key convictions are what you need to be able to live the way God wants you to live. Now, what is a conviction? It's simply being convinced of something. If you're convinced of it, that's a conviction. What are those three? Number one, the reality of God. I don't mean the reality of God in a universal sense. I don't mean the reality of God in even a national sense. I mean the reality of God in an individual sense in your life. If God is real, it changes everything. If you really are convinced he's real. 
you begin to see not only is he the master of the universe, he is the one who created time. Time didn't exist before he made it. And even though he made it, he's out. He's the one who controls history. He's the one whose plan is going to be accomplished. But we have to understand, he not only controls history, he controls what is going on in the life of an individual. He is in control. The things that have happened in my life happened because it was part of his plan for me. The things that are happening in your life are part of his plan for you. So number one, he's real. Number two, you have to be convinced that you are his man or his woman, that you belong to him. Now, if you do not belong to him, if you come to me afterwards, I can share with you how you can change that. The other people, less over here, will be more than happy, or Susan, to share that with you, how you can change that. But if you belong to him, you are his man, you are his woman, nothing can happen to you that God does not allow to happen, and that's not a part of his plan. You've got to be convinced of that. Number three, you've got to be convinced that God is going to grant his man or his woman the power and the resources to be enable you to meet whatever challenge he's going to put into your life. Will he put challenges into your life? You bet he will. But he's going to provide you when that time comes the power and the resources to meet that challenge. Now, why is he going to do that? Because he wants to show you, number one, you can't do it on your own. And number two, if you rely on him, he will provide for you. That's what he wants. Those three convictions change. You're going to see out of the 60 to 75 young men who had been trained in Israel, only four of them had those convictions. Only four. Brings us to a question. If all of a sudden the power of government rains down on us today, how many in here would be able to stand up with those convictions? It's one thing to say you will. It's a whole other thing. For example, you're looking down the barrel of a submachine gun. Do you still stand the same way? Let's go on. Because I want you to see some things about this book that I think are important as we go along. One of the things that follows those three convictions is a firm understanding in the sovereignty of God. Looking at it not from our perspective for a minute, but for Him. He is sovereign. He is in control. Let me demonstrate that to you. In a couple of passages, between 740 and 680 B.C., Isaiah wrote his book, the book of Isaiah. About a hundred years later, the things that he said happened. Look at Isaiah 39.1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he'd been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased and showed him all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasures. And there was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show him. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said, What did these men say and from where did they uh, come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. And Isaiah said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasures I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, 
Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Now when you hear that name, Lord of hosts, that's the leader of the armies of God, that's real serious. And uh, you should maybe tremble a little bit if someone is using that name with you. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this house will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Now notice, what is it saying? From where will nothing be left? Not Jerusalem. From his house. No, Hezekiah's house. From his house. All that your fathers... Uh, the day's coming, all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Is it saying all in the temple? All in God's house? No. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and truth in our days. I've changed this man's name to Hezekiah Chamberlain. Some of you get that, some of you don't. Let's go down to Jeremiah. Then Pashur the priest, the son of Imar, who was a chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. And Pashur had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put him in stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate, which was by the house of the Lord. And the next day, when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, Pashur is not the name of the Lord, is not the name the Lord has called you, but rather Magdor Misaab. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am going to make you a terror to yourself and to all your friends. And while your eyes look on, they will fall by the sword of their enemies. So I will give over all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will carry them away as exiles in Babylon and will slay them with the sword. And I will also give all the wealth of this city, its produce and all its costly things. And even all the treasures of the kings of Judah, I will give over to the hands of the enemy. And they will plunder them and take them and bring them away to Babylon. And you, Pashur, and all who live in your house will go into captivity. And you will enter Babylon, and there you will die. And there you will be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have falsely prophesied. Now that seems pretty serious to me. But does God know what's going on? Is he know, did that not happen exactly like he prophesied first through Isaiah and then with Jeremiah? God has got a plan. He knows exactly when it's going to happen. And he makes it come to pass because that's God. Now, let's look at the instrument of his wrath for a second, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was arrogant and he was proud. He was exceedingly arrogant, really. His conquests that he made were understood by him to be proof of his superiority. Nebuchadnezzar believed he was greater than Yahweh. Why would he believe that? Well, he defeated Yahweh and his people in his mind. Little did he know that it was Yahweh who gave him the victory. And the victory at Carchemish and all the other victories. Because he wanted to use him. So when he forced the capitulation of Jerusalem, his cause and his gods were vindicated and exalted in his mind. Now, God letting this man be built up in pride? Yes, because he has a fall already planned. Not immediately, in God's timing. And we need to see that. Now, from that perspective, let's ask the question for just a second. What is happening in our nation 
and even in our city. Well, two or so years ago, a tornado blew through here, carried away or buried a lifetime full of treasures and memories for many, even killing or injuring some of us. We're living in a situation where an assassin's bullet could at any time change the course of our country. And rest assured, you need to understand, there have been try after try after try to kill our former president. How many times does it happen before it's successful? Well, that depends on God and what he wants. But we need to understand that. There are terrorist cells coming into our country from the southern border that kill unarmed groups of innocents and and creates an atmosphere of fear and dread and more terror like that is on the horizon. And yet at the same time, our government is desirous of disarming her citizens so they cannot defend themselves. There are no borders any longer in our country. and We're being flooded with people, people with little to no education, inability to speak our language, with few, if any, marketable skills, many of whom carry COVID-19 and who will send most of whatever they earn back home and thereby injuring our economy. We are continued to be told in the middle, that we're in the middle of a pandemic and therefore the government has the right or the authority to cancel our constitutional rights. Small businesses that we own and spend so much of ourselves to build, they're going under regularly as our government seeks to destroy them and they'll never come back. Evil seems to be winning every bout and taking control of our lives. And there are a number of people in our community who are starting to think that God is either impotent or non-existent or AWOL. They ask, where is God when these things are happening? How can I rely on him in the future if he refuses to intervene now? It is my opinion that 25 centuries ago, Daniel and most of the people who were with him could have asked the same questions. They were living, I want you to think about these young men, 15 to 20 years old, 60 to 75 of them, they were in a nation where famine, economic ruin, and nonstop warfare had just decimated their country. They and a number of their fellow citizens were now being deported, deported to a foreign nation. Daniel and his compatriots found themselves subject to an egocentric and excessive king who was the leader of a totally godless people. Now, that was on a national level. Let's look for a second on a personal level just for these boys. 15, 16-year-old boy. Their nation was conquered. They were made hostages. How does this affect their lives and their dreams? Well, see, they were all part of the Israeli aristocracy, maybe even part of the royal family. They had important positions waiting for them in, in their family's holdings. They had been groomed for these. They also had women waiting for them who had been selected to be their wives. Plans for extended families. And now they were being marched back to Babylon the long way. If you look at this, from Jerusalem over here to Babylon is about 500 miles. But if you go up this way, it's 900 miles. You think they were given animals to ride? No. They were marching 900 miles. You think that's something that will wear you down? Well, that was the intention. Not only were they marched back to Babylon, they're now in a foreign country whose culture and traditions they were forced to adjust to. They had to learn a new language. There were foreign customs and etiquette which they had no knowledge of. They were to become officials in the king's court. Now, something rather delicate, but what did they call officials in the king's court? Eunuchs. Not something you want to think about, is it, Don? That's not a, a position you're willing to accede to, is it? No, I didn't think so. So... 
you begin to see what's going on in these 60 to 75 boys' lives, but there are three of them. Instead of giving up, instead of giving in, they held on to their convictions and they refused to compromise. That's the example God is giving us of what we must do. You see, as with all men and women whom God has used to change the world, there's some common threads that tie them all together. Paul expressed it this way in Romans 12 too, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what is the will of God is, and that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, those kind of men and women don't just obey God. They exercise radical obedience in their lives, motivated by an experiential knowledge of Him and a fear of God. So let's look again at the first verses in Daniel, and there's some things I want you to see. We're going to read the first four verses now. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of the officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, and, in, and endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So, as an introduction to this book, Daniel begins this way. The king of Babylon besieged. And they finally, and God gave Jehoiakim over to his hands. Now, the Babylonians would always do this. They would take from everyone they conquered. They would take usually some of the young men. They would take the wealth of the nation. They would seek to prove that their gods were superior. They would also take a number of the young women to populate their harem. Now, notice what it said in verse 2. Nebuchadnezzar took some of the vessels of the house of God with him to the land of Shinar. Some. Why wouldn't he take all? Well, let's just assume you're going to take some. What would you take if you were King Nebuchadnezzar? Well, let's look at the... This is the tabernacle, basically the same setup as the temple. In the very holy of holies is the Ark of the Covenant. That's all gold, right? The box itself is overlaid with gold. The, the top is gold, pure gold. Now, you have here the altar of incense. It's also gold. And it's where they would burn incense. You have down here the seven-branch lampstand. Uh, it's gold. You have over here the table of showbread. It's gold. Then you have this bronze or brass laver here in the front and the brass altar, the bronze altar. And then you have a bunch of other implements that were used. What are you going to take? You would think, some people say, well, you can't take the Ark of the Covenant because that's where God's presence is. Anymore? No, God's presence left. Ezekiel got to witness that much to his horror. And he knew that they were in serious trouble when he saw that. If you look at, besides Daniel 2, you look at Second Chronicles 36, 7, it says the same thing. Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple. You notice, here again it says some. And it's saying vessels. That doesn't describe those main pieces, does it? No, it doesn't. However, could you argue 
that when Nebuchadnezzar was taking these implements, he didn't allow the Jewish people to do an audit and an inventory of everything he was taking. Well, of course not. He wouldn't allow that. But did those things ever come back? Yes, they did. Ezra was able. How could Ezra get them to bring them back? Well, because God worked. Don't you remember Proverbs 21.1? The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. And God turned the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. If you look in Ezra chapter 1, we'll do verse 2 and then 5 through 11. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord. Now that word Lord, Yahweh, he uses that name. Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Notice first the difference between he and Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar says, my gods are superior. I'm going to destroy the temple of Yahweh. I got to where I am as ruler of the world because of me. Cyrus says something a little different. And he has appointed me. That is, Yahweh has appointed Cyrus to build him a house in Jerusalem. That is Judah. And then the heads of the father's households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites rose. And everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those about them encouraged them with articles of silver, gold, with goods, with cattle, with valuables aside. Also King Cyrus, now this is important, brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. So he's bringing out all of the articles. What were they? Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of Mithridat, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now, this was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver numbered 5,400, and Sheshbazar brought them up with the exiles when they went up to Babylon to Jerusalem. Mark? Uh, the chronology of this, is this post-Esther? So has the Jewish influence been in the country now? I, I, I believe Artaxerxes was after Cyrus. Now, did anyone notice in there a reference to the Ark of the Covenant? To the table of showbread? No. To the altar of incense or the golden lampstand? No. Well, why wouldn't Nebuchadnezzar take those? Hidden. Hidden where? How about under the Temple Mount? Now, that shows some things to us that's important. That seems like, well, what's there about that? No, that shows us some very important things. When they came back, did the Holy Spirit ever re-inhabit the Holy of Holies? Scripture never tells us that he came back. Did they have the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies? I am convinced they did not. Somehow, where it was hidden, got lost. And whoever, you know, they didn't let too many people have that knowledge, probably. And it was lost. Now, God wanted to show us that. And you know how he showed us that? On the day that's coming up here in this next week, on the Wednesday or Thursday, not Friday, when Jesus died... Do you know what God did? He grabbed a hold of that veil in the temple from the top and ripped it completely apart, showing there was nothing there. Do you see, the religion, 
that they'd been practicing was empty and hollow because there was no mercy seat or God dwelling in it. Mark? I understand that that veil Uh, thicker. There, and there was no way that you could do that. You'd have to have a team of horses or oxen to pull it apart, and you'd pull it apart from the bottom. But, of course, God, he pulls it apart from the top. So it's an amazing event that we become to see what is really going on here. Now, Nebuchadnezzar took these hostages back to make them maybe appear as hostages to the people who were still staying there. But he had other plans for them. He planned to turn them into Chaldeans, turn them into his people who were loyal to him, to use them in diplomatic, bureaucratic, advisory functions. And if we look through these verses, and we're going to go through this kind of quickly, they had no defects and they were good looking. Uh, they showed intelligence in every branch of wisdom. They, in addition to that, were endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. Everything about these people, and they had an ability to serve in the king's court. I have put the Hebrew words there in the notes that you can look at and see from the lexicon what those words mean and how they're given. But he gave orders for these young men to be trained and educated for three years in a Babylonian higher education. And they were going to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. Let's look in chapter 1, verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from among the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and he appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them were the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. And Nebuchadnezzar also wanted them to get used to and to grow up and like and appreciate Babylonian food. He therefore had the best food. The same food he was eating, he had for them to eat. The same wine that he was drinking, he had for them to drink. And he ordered that their names be changed. Now, why would someone's name be changed? Because he doesn't want them to reflect to the name they were given by their parents but the name they were given by him. Also, who has the authority to name someone? Someone who owns them. I mean, we have a dog in our house. Dog doesn't pick his own name. None of you can say, well, that, no, I think his name should be this. Julie gets to decide who that dog's name is, and it's Bentley. Well, you see, that's a little white kind of, you know, designer rat kind of thing, so it's perfect for now, let's go back. You're, you're going to this too fast. So, the names had meaning. And Nebuchadnezzar didn't want that meaning displayed. So, Daniel, whose name is God is my judge, he changed that to Belteshazzar. And uh, that means the Lord of the straightened treasure. The Lord of the straightened treasure, which was Bel, whose treasure was brought to his temple. Then as to Hananiah, his mean God has favored and it was royal or the great scribe, you could put it. Mishael, who is and what God, who is what God is. And then Meshach, guest of the king. And not exactly the guest. And then finally, uh, Azariah, which is Yahweh has helped. And his name was changed to Abednego, servant of Nebo. 
Now, there's some differentiation among the scholars as to the actual meaning of these names. You'll see maybe a little different in the appendix that's uh, cited on your appendix C, which is attached at the back of your lesson notes. But notice this Chaldean indoctrination. They taught them the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. That means Aramaic or Chaldean. Uh, they had to learn those languages. Aramaic was the language most everybody spoke, but the religious wise men had these Chaldean traditions, so they had to, to master those parts of the language too, Chaldean. They were taught the law of the Babylonians, which included the Code of Hammurabi. They were taught the moral code and religious precepts of the people. They were taught the cultural organization and standards of the people. The history and, and geography of the empire, agriculture and animal husbandry, science, mathematics, astrology and astronomy. They were taught to like Babylonian foods and they were given new names. Yes? This being that with how organized they were to, and when we let people in here, they don't learn anything about Well, if they came in in the proper way, they do have to learn certain things. Now, I want you to see something. Of all of these things that they wanted them to do, and want maybe is not the right word, commanded that they do, which of those wrong should they not do? There's only one. There's nothing wrong with learning foreign language or the law and the moral code, learning those, the cultural, the history, the agriculture, or even responding to a new name. There's nothing wrong with that. But when it comes to food that's not kosher, now here's an interesting thing. Some people want to say, well, you see, they wouldn't drink wine. They only drank water because it was wrong to drink wine. No, that's not the concept here. What it was was that wine had been offered to idols. And so they were going to refuse to do that. How are they going to refuse to do that when they're hostages and the Babylonians are the captives? How are they going to do that? That means more than likely you choose not to do it and die, or do it and live. Now. Well, if they've already castrated you, what else is there? She's going to have a few things to say to you on the way home, Don. Uh, I'm, I'm very confident of that. And so I'm not going to answer that question. She, I'm sure, will answer that for you. But the thing is, do you compromise or not? Now, let me tell you, there's going to be somebody whispering in these boys' ears. Now listen. God's got you over here to use you. And He wants to use you to affect these people. But if you're dead, how can He use you? Live and let Him use you. Don't be so stubborn about this. Don't be so dogmatic. Compromise the way that God would love. Now, I am certainly not as persuasive as a fellow named Lucifer. Thank goodness. But those are the kind of things that are going to come out. And you're going to see. And Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah are going to have to learn how to stick by their convictions and live an uncompromising life and yet use the wisdom that God has given them to deal with the world around them. And we're going to look at that. But before we finish, I think there's several questions we need to answer. Number one, you're going to learn God's going to turn Nebuchadnezzar's heart. And that one day, if you are a true believer, you will get to meet Nebuchadnezzar. Would God do all that he did to Judah just to win one man? How long was the life of those people in Judah compared to eternity? Yes, 
God does that because He knows what's important and what's not. And we need to understand that. Number two, would He do it to our nation for a similar purpose? Yeah, He would. And we need to be prepared of what's important. Now, some of you are going to hate what I'm going to say. Is our Constitution as important as the number of people's eternity? That's hard for me to say because I love our Constitution. I've pledged allegiance to our Constitution in the profession that I'm a part of. But let me tell you, the Constitution will be gone and we'll never remember it again when we're up there with Him. And He doesn't want anyone to perish. We need to prepare ourselves for what's coming. Quiet, strongly held convictions lead to long-term respect. We need to learn, don't wait until you're in a difficult situation to decide how you're going to obey, whether you're going to obey or not. You see, what we've looked at right now, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, they're all going to have to make a decision. Am I going to obey God or not? When do you make that decision? You've got to understand that. That's very important. What are you committed to? Number two, or number three, don't wait until you're in a difficult situation to decide to become accomplished in prayer and fasting. Now remember, I don't think fasting is giving up video games. As much as somebody in my house would like me to fast in that way. But, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry, Lord. But the fact is, fasting involves food. And we need to see what God wants us to do. Because that is always the mark of serious prayer. Not just kind of prayer. Serious prayer. All-out prayer. We're going to see that in Daniel's life. He's going to pray and fast. And you will see. Number four, wherever you are, God has you there for a purpose. Well, I don't want to be here. God has you there for a purpose. You know, would it have been easier if God had told Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, listen, they're going to try and take your life several times. I'm going to protect you the entire period, but I'm going to use you to turn Nebuchadnezzar's heart to me. Would it have been a lot easier for them? Of course it would. Why didn't he tell them? Because easy doesn't begat faith. You've got to trust me that I know what's going on, that I'm in control, and I'm going to make things happen the way I want them to happen. That is why he doesn't tell us. He wants you to trust him. Finally, and I think the most important lesson from this book we can find, compromise with the world on spiritual values, issues, and questions creates great vulnerability for you weakness in your life so that the, you as a believer, it will lead you to disaster. The first compromise seems like it's not so significant, but it is. And it's putting you down the road that you're never going to be able to turn back from. Stop compromise now. Is that easy? No. God will give you the power and the resources to meet that challenge, just like he gave these three young, four young men the power and the resources to meet their challenge. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you that we could come to study this book. I thank you for giving us this book. Help us to learn to what it means to live a non-compromising life. Help us to understand how you can tell, how we can tell whether we're living that kind of life. I pray that you give us that kind of life that other people will be able to see they can live it too. And that we can stand up for you, no matter what the cost is that we have to pay. Give us the courage. Give us the trust. Give us the power. 
power that came from your resurrection. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, in the power of your Holy Spirit, and in his shed blood. Amen. <laughs>